Genesis chapter 39, the story of Joseph in Potiphar's house. When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph so that he succeeded in everything that he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. Verse 8. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you, because you were his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by the cloak, demanding, Come on. Sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave of yours brought, that that Hebrew slave you've brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her, so he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held and where he remained. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love, and the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. 
the Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. And this is the word of the Lord. I am not a superhero, but I do have just one superpower, and that is I cut my own hair. I have cut my own hair for almost 20 years now. And some of you are thinking, uh, yeah, we can tell. I remember two things, though, about those days when I hired other people to cut my hair. First thing, I remember how much I loved having someone else wash my hair. And if you've got one of those sinks with a spot for a human neck, I will pay you to wash my hair. Is this. I remember how much I loved having someone else wash my hair. Have you had this done? This is really special, right? I don't know if my head uh, is more sensitive than most people's, but I like this. Anyway, um, if you've got one of those sinks with the little like spot for someone's neck, I'll, I would, you can't cut my hair, but I'll pay you to wash my hair, right? And I'll pay you good money. Because I remember that was a good feeling. Second thing that I remember from 20 years ago, the last time I got my hair cut, um, I remember on the wall of the unisex barbershop salon where I went to get my hair cut, it was all ladies that cut hair there, and they sold a lot of women's hair products. But I remember one advertisement on the wall, and they were selling something for women, and they had, to my mind, just the most beautiful woman on this advertisement. There was nothing, like, erotic about the appearance. She was just a beautiful woman. And I thought, this is my dream woman. It was everything at that time that I wanted in a woman, I thought, right? Um, the curly hair, blonde, the eyes, the hair products that she chose, uh, everything. She was just perfect. Uh, she was the combination of all the elements that I had dreamed of in a woman as a teenager. She was my dream woman. Hated getting my hair cut, but I looked forward to getting my hair washed, and I looked forward to seeing my dream woman on the wall. And then one day when I was getting my hair cut, I realized she was not on the wall anymore. She was gone. And I'm thinking that's the last time I come to this place. But then I thought after the haircut, I'm going out to the dumpster, the big trash can. And sure enough, she was in there and she was in perfect condition. So this is even better than her being on the wall of the barber shop. I took her home with me and I put her on my wall in my room being the creepy teenage boy that I was. <laughs> and like, even telling that story, I feel a little embarrassed about it, because that's creepy even if you're like a teenager, hormones and everything, right? Um, but what if you would do that sort of thing as an adult? That would be pretty weird, right? It would be especially inappropriate if I did it now. I'm married, I have three children, I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian following Jesus. Uh, yeah, that would be super weird. When I was in my mid-twenties and I was training to become a pastor, I had a professor who was teaching us about 
real ministry with real people in real churches. And one of the stories that he told in class stunned me. There was a pastor somewhere near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the U.S. This was a pastor that my professor knew. And this pastor didn't have any poster up on his wall because he was married and he was a pastor of his dream girl. Instead, what he did was he imagined his dream girl. She was just up here, not on the wall. See, what he had done over the years was he had kind of just looked around and he had picked a smile there, a hairstyle over here, an eye color here, a figure from over here, a skin tone, a height, a weight. And he had cultivated in his mind an image of his dream girl. This is a 40-something pastor with a wife and a family. And he did this for years. Until one day, when he is in his church, just like me, maybe he's up in the pulpit like that, and he's preaching. And halfway through his sermon, what happens? His dream woman walks through the back door and comes down the aisle and sits down in the back. And he thinks that he's dreaming because this is his dream girl, right? This only happens up here, but this is happening out here now. Weird, right? But of course, my pastor's telling, or my professor's telling me this story as a warning, and our whole class as a warning. And the next thing he said to us at this point in the story was, how long do you think it took for them to end up in bed together? How long do you think it took for him to lose his marriage and his relationship with his kids and his ministry and his Christian faith even. I don't remember what the answer was to that question, but that's what happened. And the point of the story was, don't let this be you. The point was, here is a pastor who isn't, as far as we know, looking at pornography. He's not sleeping with the church secretary. He's superficially a pretty happy man with the family. But he had a dream woman in the secrecy of his mind. And by the time that she walked into his church, he was gone. There was no hope for him. Now, I want you to imagine how this story in Genesis chapter 39 would have turned out if Joseph, a single guy, had spent year after year in Palestine first and then in Egypt, walking around, picking a hairstyle here, a smile there, some hips over here, a laugh over here, and just had assembled his dream woman in his mind. Maybe Potiphar's wife shows up and she turned out to be that dream woman. Maybe she looked kind of similar, but not really. Maybe she looked better. Maybe she looked totally different. But imagine how, this, how different this encounter with Joseph's master's wife might have been 
if Joseph had been in the habit of consuming women with his eyes and with his heart, abstracting certain physical features from different women and kind of cultivating his preferences, seeing female bodies as the raw material for possessive desires that he just kind of cultivated. Now, thankfully, that's not what happens here. Look at verse 6 here. (laughs) The text says that Joseph was really good-looking. Basically, the Bible's telling us that Joseph was sexy. The Bible uses the same words to describe Joseph's appearance as it had um, with Joseph's mom. I guess it's not verse 6. Verse verse 5 there. Uh, No, it is verse 6, yeah. Um, He's well-built and handsome. Same thing that Genesis says about Joseph's mom, Rachel, she was a babe, and now he's a stud in Egypt. The Bible has no problem saying these people are hot stuff, right? And maybe Joseph, maybe you, maybe I, in his position, would have felt like a sense of entitlement. Like there's people that are beautiful, and then there's people that are beautiful, and they know that they're beautiful, right? A handsome guy like me should get to have any woman that he wants. Maybe he has a sense of entitlement. Or imagine if he'd carried around with him deep bitterness against the Lord for all the stuff, all the nasty stuff that had happened in his life all of those years. Lord, what kind of God lets the youngest kid in the family get sold off into slavery by his older brothers, these brothers who have bullied him all of his life? What kind of God lets a son get separated from his father who loves him so much? I'm bitter towards you, Lord. I think if I was Joseph, it would be easy for my heart to grow cold toward my God, and I would begin to look for my identity in other things besides my God who had seemed to go somewhere else. And I might think to myself, I'll take whatever prestige, whatever passion, whatever I can get to make up for what God has put me through. And somehow, though, Joseph was not bitter toward the Lord, despite the trauma in his life. Somehow, Joseph did not let his good looks convince him that he was entitled to anything that he wanted. Joseph didn't objectify women in his mind and heart, it seems, like that pastor did. Joseph was a broken man. I mean, when you read his life story, he shouldn't have gotten sold into slavery, but boy, did he love to tell his older brothers that he had these dreams that one day he would be rulers over them and they would have to bow down and serve him. He loved that, it sure seems. He seemed to love how much his father favored him over his brothers. Look at my coat, brothers. It's colorful. Your coat is tan or gray. I'm reading a little bit into the text here, but you get that sense that Joseph really likes being number 12, but really number one. So he's broken, but he's also broken sexually because we all are. 
And because we're broken, period, our brokenness affects every area of our lives in one way or another, including your, including my, including Joseph's sexuality. So what is it then that enabled him to stand up straight and do what was right when the pressure was on him? I think that our text tells us pretty clearly, and the answer is, the Lord was with Joseph. Hebrew literature doesn't repeat itself for no reason. The scholars tell us if it's in there more than once, it's important. If it's in there four times, it's really important. Twice at the beginning of our story, verses two and three, we read almost redundantly, the Lord was with him. Then in verse 5, two different times in that verse, the Lord blessed Potiphar, his master, because of Joseph. The Lord is around, isn't he? Seems that God has plans for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's family, yes, in the promised land in Palestine, but God seems to have followed the youngest of the 12 sons of Jacob, Joseph, down into Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph. And then, verse 7, Potiphar's wife starts to make her own plans, maybe starts to cultivate her own fantasies about this sexy man that's suddenly serving her household, Joseph. And before long, she says to him, Joseph, come to bed with me. I've never had that said to me. I guess my wife maybe has said that to me, but I've never been in Joseph's shoes. I have no idea what that feels like, but can you imagine? And he responds to her and gives her a stunning reason of why he can't possibly do something like that. And still, verse 10 says, she kept demanding it every day, day after day. Can you imagine what kind of pressure that would put on you if you were Joseph? Maybe she's saying to him, you are my slave. It is your job to do what I say. Maybe she threatens him. Think of how often Joseph must have had to think this through over and over. What do I do? How do I get this to stop? Can I go and tell my master what's going on? Am I going to end up dead one way or another? Who can I tell? Lord, what are you doing? And what can you do for me? I wonder if he thought to himself some of those nights, maybe I should just do it. I have no idea. But somehow Joseph is able to recognize that God has been with him. How could he ever leave his God and go with Potiphar's wife instead? God has been with him. And so that's what he says to her. You know, it says at the beginning of our text, as I mentioned, when things are going well with Joseph in Potiphar's house, that the Lord was with Joseph. And then at the very end of our text, when Joseph is in prison, it says that the Lord was with Joseph. But there's no declaration from the narrator 
in the middle of all that temptation. It doesn't say, but the Lord was with Joseph, and that's why he made it through. I don't know if that's on purpose or not. But I do know this. There are times when things are going so well in your life that you know for sure that God is real. And you know that he's with you. And that he's blessing your work and your life. No doubt about it. And there are also times when things are not going well in your life. And everything is falling apart right in front of you. And yet, somehow, you still know that the Lord is with you, holding tight onto you. If I just opened the microphone, we could have testimonies of both kinds of things, right, in this room. Guarantee it. But here's the other thing I know. There are times when you don't feel God's presence. And that's a trial and a difficulty all by itself. But then there's sometimes in those periods where you don't feel God's presence and you face some great temptation or test in the middle of that. And that is really hard. Yeah? The narrator never tells us that God was with Joseph in the middle of this season of temptation. Whether Joseph felt God's presence or not during this difficult time, we don't know. But what's amazing is what Joseph does. What does he do? What does he say when the temptation is staring him right in the face? Joseph, verse 9, he declares that whether he feels it or not, he is going to stand in God's presence and on God's own faithfulness. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my God, he says. It's like, whether he feels it or not, Joseph is speaking the reality of God's presence right into the face of his temptation. Uh, Tim Keller has said that you can do one of two things with your heart when your heart starts talking to you. You can either listen to your heart or you can talk to your heart. Imagine if Joseph had only listened to his heart. Maybe his heart is saying to him, hey, Joseph, where's your God now? Joseph, how could an all-good and all-powerful God put you in a situation like this after you've served him? I know in my heart My heart has said these kinds of things to me a bunch of times in my life. But Keller says, so are you going to just let your heart talk to you? Or are you going to talk to your heart? Are you going to preach to your heart when it starts talking to you? The writer of both Psalm 42 and 43, look it up sometime, preaches at his heart. His heart saying, "This, this is awful, this sucks, there's no way out. And he preaches at his heart and says, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why are you so troubled within me? Put your hope in God. There's going to come a tomorrow, and tomorrow you're going to praise him. So hang on tight and put your hope 
in this God of yours who has never let you down. Joseph somehow remembered the faithfulness of God, and he preached God's presence and his grace to his heart and to Potiphar's wife and into the, tempta- the temptation that he was facing. And this is what we need to do as well, isn't it? Because if we only listen to our heart instead of talking to it, then we end up easily justifying all kinds of things, don't we? Sexual sins and other things. Whether it's sleeping with someone else's spouse or sleeping with someone you're not married to or pretending to sleep with people you're not married to in your mind, either through fantasies like this pastor had or pornography or whatever else. If you let your heart talk to you when you're not feeling God's presence, your heart might tell you that you should just do what you want because God's not around anyway and he doesn't really love you or care for you. He can't be trusted. And the next thing you know, you're listening to your heart and you're following your heart and you're doing these things and now you don't even want God's presence because God's presence feels to you so uncomfortable. You can't bear the guilt. And after all, you end up wanting more of what your heart convinced you that you should really have. So what do you do, though, if you haven't been heroic Joseph? What, if you, what do you do if you're already there in that place where you, a lot of times, I mean, it was enough to just get your butt into church tonight. You don't like being in God's presence because you're bearing this guilt. You've given in so many times. Or you're just standing firm, but you're oppressed and you're disgusted by all of these temptations. What do you do if it's not just that you don't feel God's presence and grace in your life, but you don't even really want God's presence? We look at Joseph, and all of us think, yeah, maybe like 20% of the time, that's me. 15% of the time. But I'm no hero like Joseph. If that's you, and it probably is, then what I want you to experience tonight is this reality. Joseph is awesome. But the Lord Jesus is the truer and the better Joseph. And I only thought of nine ways in which that's true. So the last thing we'll say here is don't just look at Joseph and feel horrible for how little you resemble him, but look to the Lord Jesus, who's the truer and better one. Here's nine quick ways that Joseph and Jesus are alike, but Jesus is actually the truer and better Joseph. Number one, Joseph was a shepherd, favored by his father, so much so that his brothers hated him. The Lord Jesus was God's only son, and so his favorite son, and God had smiled on him with his favor for all of eternity, and also during his earthly life and ministry. And he called him and made him to be not just a shepherd, but the good shepherd over the whole people of Israel. Number two, Joseph had been taken down into Egypt and sold by his brothers who hated him because he was going to one day, they heard, be the one that would rule over them. 
The Lord Jesus, when he was a baby, had to be taken down into Egypt, fleeing from this king who heard that one day Jesus would rule all other kings. Number three, Joseph in this encounter is disgraced. No clothes on anymore. That's a disgrace in the ancient world for sure. And he's disgraced though while he's doing the honorable thing. His clothes are stripped off of him as he flees. He does what the Lord, who was always with him, called him to do. And in the process, he serves his master and his master's wife. The Lord Jesus is disgraced, having his own clothes taken from him, while he does the most honorable thing in history. And though he was the Lord, not just head over a household, but the Lord of all lords, he does what his father calls him to do, And he does it humbly. And while he does it, he gives his life to love and serve his neighbors and also his enemies. Number four, Joseph is in a foreign land, far away from home and a long way off from his father. And he thought that he had lost his father. And his father thought that he was dead and gone. The Lord Jesus is in a distant land, far from home, and eventually far from his father at the cross. And he didn't just think that maybe he had lost his father, but on the cross actually did lose his father. And his father lost him. It's hard to imagine the significance of that. We just can't. Number five. Joseph, of course, was a slave, but he'd been given, even as a slave, tons of privileges. He had Lots of authority, and he lived very comfortably in Egyptian luxury, didn't he? Eating and drinking well. And in that context of luxury, he's tempted. Jesus, by contrast, owns all of the wealth and prestige in the entire creation. But as a real man, he goes without food for 40 days in the wilderness. And it's in that context that he is tempted Jesus' temptation and his victory over it was far greater than Joseph's. Number six, Potiphar left everything, his household, all of his business affairs, everything but dinner into Joseph's hands. And he was convinced that Joseph would do all things well, verse six. God the Father put everything into Jesus, his son's hand, giving him all authority putting everything under his feet and made him high priest over his whole household, Hebrews tells us. And he told him, son, go and do all things well. And then his son did all things well and returned to home. And his father said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have done all things well. Number seven, Joseph, like we said, is super handsome just like his mom, Rachel. Jesus, the scriptures tell us, has no outward appearance that anyone would find him attractive. And he becomes, in his suffering, so disfigured that no one even thought he looked human anymore. Number eight. 
Joseph was betrayed by his brothers who were jealous of him. And they sold him for what seems to be about 230 grams of silver. Jesus comes to his own people, and they don't receive him as they should. And one of his closest friends, one of his brothers, betrays him for about 300 grams of silver. And then finally, number nine, over and over, this text says that the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord was with Joseph. The spirit of the Lord Jesus sustained Jesus throughout his ministry. And he enjoyed his father's smile all of that time on his life and on his work. But at the cross, when Jesus needed his father's presence the most, when he was tempted to say, this is over, I'm coming down from the cross, Good idea, Roman soldiers who are mocking me. That's what it will do. When everything was at its most intense and he needed his father most. His father was not there for him. Couldn't be there for him because he was bearing the sin of the world. And although, like Joseph, Jesus was innocent of everything that they accused him of, unlike Joseph... Jesus was bearing the guilt of everything that we have done. So what's my point with all this? I'm not just trying to impress you. I mean, I am trying to impress you with Jesus because he's awesome. But my point, as I said earlier, is that Jesus is the truer and better Joseph. He doesn't just give us an example of how to handle temptation, even fierce temptation, when we get it. But he saves us by undergoing temptation himself and by persevering through it. And then by dying for us and by rising for us and by living now for us. So yeah, look to Genesis 39 and look to Joseph, but don't look to Joseph because you're just not Joseph. But look to the better Joseph, to the Lord Jesus himself, because he saves and because he gives you the power by being God's presence in your life by his spirit to love him, to love your neighbor, and to even do that by resisting sexual temptation. So look to the Lord Jesus to begin to experience substantial healing from your own brokenness, sexual brokenness and otherwise. For he is strong to save. He's the truer and better Joseph. Heavenly Father, we pray that in all things we would find Jesus a great treasure, a great hero, a wonderful counselor for our time of temptation and need. We pray that you would make us each people of clean hands and pure hearts, that we wouldn't lift our hearts, souls, or bodies, or minds up to anything else except to you. Cleanse us from our sin, renew our spirits, and make our lives a living testimony of your grace and of your power to restore and to heal and to grow. Give us the courage to repent 
and give us the courage to take the step of faith to draw closer to Jesus and to live by following hard after him. We're so thankful for him. So receive our praises as we praise him now. Amen.